This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Cardio Nerds. I'm here with Cardio Nerds Academy Chief, Dr. Tommy Das. Today, we get to learn from ACHD fellow, Dr. Anu Dodeja, an ACHD expert and master educator, Dr. Carrie Schaefer, about ventricular septal defect. Thank you, Agnes. I would like to welcome our esteemed faculty, Dr. Carrie Schaefer from Boston Children's and Brigham and Women's. Dr. Schaefer completed her residency in internal medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, following which she did her cardiology fellowship at University of Texas Southwestern and advanced fellowship in adult congenital heart disease and pulmonary hypertension at Boston Children's and Brigham and Women's Hospital, where she stayed on as faculty with the focus on adult congenital and stress cardiac imaging. Her current and past research efforts focus on better understanding the response to exercise in those with congenital heart disease, and she has served on guideline committees for the ACC and AHA regarding sports participation in those with congenital heart disease. Welcome, Dr. Schaefer. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be able to speak with you all today and to be part of the Cardio Notes podcast. I'm such a huge fan of this amazing program. Dr. Schaefer, as an ACHD fellow myself, I'd love to hear how you got interested in ACHD. You know, I think adult congenital heart disease found me more than I found it. My education started with medical school at University of New Mexico, where I first got the opportunity to work with pediatric cardiologists. And then actually one of my current mentors who happened to be in New Mexico at the time and had trained in Boston, Dr. Daryl Lee. And I saw ACHD patients there. And when I came to Beth Israel for my internal medicine residency, I was told about this amazing merge between pediatric and adult cardiology, which is adult congenital cardiology. So I think just the idea of combining the unique physiology of the two different populations together with colleagues and something new every time has really been what hooked me into adult congenital heart disease. I'm interested to know more about why you've chosen it. Thank you, Dr. Schaefer. During medical school, I fell in love with congenital heart disease. I found the pathophysiology and thinking through the hemodynamics of complex lesions to be fascinating. I pursued MedPeds residency at Geisinger Medical Center, where I continued to develop an interest in transition of care, and I started to learn more about the long-term outcomes and patients with congenital heart disease that were living into adulthood. And as a resident, I rotated with the Boston ACHD program that affirmed my interest in ACHD. And when it came time to deciding my pathway, my love for congenital heart disease is what made it a very easy decision to pursue a fellowship in pediatric cardiology, to have a strong foundation in congenital heart disease, and then being able to follow these patients over their lifespan. I chose Nationwide Children's for my pediatric cardiology fellowship, and I continued to have exposure to a large volume of ACHD patients there and stayed on as an ACHD fellow at Ohio State University and Nationwide Children's. Anu, Dr. Schaefer, thank you both so much for joining us here today. I can't wait to hear this discussion that we're going to have today about dull heart disease. And Agnes, I know you've got a really interesting case today from our Cardio Nerds ACHD clinic. You want to share a little bit about the first patient? Yeah, Tommy, I'd love to tell you about our first case. So this is Samantha Smith. She's a 26-year-old woman with a known perimembranous ventricular septal defect 
who was previously followed by her pediatric cardiologist until she was lost to follow up when she went off to college. However, she was recently seen for a routine physical and was referred to adult congenital heart disease. Here she reports she's never had any symptoms and as a child was able to keep up with her peers, no problems. She's continued to do well to this day without any complaint. Anu, does the type of ventricular septal defect impact the follow-up for these types of patients? And if so, how? Great question, Agnes. The type of ventricular septal defect does impact the associated hemodynamic consequences. The most common ventricular septal defect is a perimembranous ventricular septal defect, which accounts for about 80% of VSDs and occurs in the membranous septum and can have both an inlet or an outlet extension. They are typically located near the tricuspid and aortic valves, oftentimes can be closed off by the tissue from the septal leaflet of the tricuspid valve and associated with abnormalities in the septal leaflet of the tricuspid valve secondary to damage from the left-to-right shunt. This type of VSD can also be associated with an acquired form of right ventricular outflow tract obstruction, double chamber right ventricle, or left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, or presence of a subaortic membrane formation, which we will discuss later. The best place on echo to see this type of defect is in the peristernal short axis at the base. Typically, you can see the VSD at a 10 to 12 o'clock position. The second most common type of VSDs are muscular type of VSDs, which are usually restrictive and can be multiple and usually close spontaneously by direct apposition of the muscular borders. Uh, Interesting. So in this context, restrictive just means a small VSD that restricts blood flow across the defect. But Anu, tell me, how do we define whether a VSD is restrictive and how does that impact prognosis and management for the patient? That's a great question, Tommy. VSDs can be flow and pressure restrictive, which is determined by both the size of the VSD and differences between the systemic and pulmonary vascular resistance. Restrictive defects are those with high resistance to flow and permit only a small amount of left-to-right shunting, usually less than 50% of the ventricular output or a QP to QS of less than 1.5. By echo, we can Doppler the flow across the ventricular septal defect to assess the velocity and gradient across the VSD. Restrictive defects will have a high velocity, many times more than 4 meters per second, indicating a high gradient between the LV and RV. In restrictive defects, the RV pressure remains normal, the pulmonary artery pressures and PVR is also normal, and there's a little increase in the ventricular stroke volume. When you have large defects that can be equal to or greater than the size of the cross-sectional diameter of the aortic root, oftentimes there's little resistance to flow, and they are sometimes called as unrestrictive defects. In those cases, the pressure between the ventricles is equal, and the magnitude of shunt depends upon the relative pulmonary and systemic vascular resistance. As PVR declines, there is a large left-to-right shunt that generates an increased pulmonary blood flow, which results in increased pulmonary venous return and increased volume load to the left ventricle. And this left ventricle volume overload can result in left ventricular dilation and increased end-diastolic pressure that can then cause an increase in your left atrial pulmonary venous and progressive symptoms of heart failure can develop. And over time, these patients can develop Eisenmenger syndrome. The other types of ventricular septal defects include outlet type, which account for about 5% of defects and are located beneath the semilunar valves in the conal or the outlet septum. These can also be known as supracrystal or subarterial or pulmonary defects. And the key thing to remember here is that these defects do not usually close spontaneously and can be associated with progressive aortic regurgitation due to prolapse of the right aortic cusp and aneurysm of the sinus of Valsalva. 
That's a great review. Thank you so much, Anu. I think that you're really laying this out clearly for everyone to understand. I would just reinforce what you said is that there really are four types of defects, membranous being the very most common and restrictive being the most common finding when we diagnose patients in adulthood. We'll talk a little bit more about physical exam findings, but I think it's important to remember that the louder the murmur, the more likely the patient is to have a restrictive defect. And by definition, then, that means that the flow actually isn't all that much. So even though a loud murmur often means a lot of pathology and other lesions, in the setting of a VSD, a loud murmur actually is kind of a good sign. And we'll keep talking about that as we go through. That's so interesting, Agnes, and just equating what we see at the bedside to what we're seeing on echo and what it actually means in terms of the clinical outcomes for the patient just brings it all together. You know, Anu, one thing you talked about a little bit is progressive AI that happens due to prolapse at the right coronary cusp, and it seems to clearly be an issue for these patients. You know, throughout the ACHD series, we're framing everything in terms of the structural abnormality, the hemodynamic consequence, and the clinical sequelae. Anu, what's the mechanism for AI in this context, and how is that usually addressed? The AI in this context is due to prolapse of the right or sometimes the non-coronary aortic valve cusp. And initially, that may result in a reduction in the degree to left-to-right shunting because that prolapsed cusp closes off the VSD, but over time, that can result in the development of aortic regurgitation. In its early stage, the prolapse occurs only in the systolic phase, because of the Venturi effect. And then over time, that prolapsing aortic valve can become incompetent and result in significant damage to the valve cusp and the annulus. As the prolapsing aortic valve initially can close the VSD, there can be a decrease in the type of murmur that you hear. And over time, you get a progressive development of aortic regurgitation. Rarely, the prolapsed valve can even perforate through and result in severe AI. And that can be seen on the peristernal short axis at the base as well, where you can see the prolapse of the cusp. Thanks for mentioning that. I think it's really important to remind everybody that aortic regurgitation is associated with ASDs because of this venturi effect. It's often not terribly intuitive that somebody would have because of the flow through the VSD and really the high velocity flow pulling that leaflet in would be at risk for aortic regurgitation. And because of that, actually, it is an important part of the guidelines. I will direct all of our listeners to the ACCAHA guidelines published in 2018 and the really nice phone application that allows us to think through a flowchart of how we manage ventricular septal defects, particularly with aortic regurgitation. And I'd like to remind everybody that progressive aortic regurgitation in the setting of a membranous or in an outlet VSD is an indication, although class 2A, an indication for surgical intervention. The other thing I just want to also expound upon, which Anu laid the groundwork for nicely, is the fact that there actually is valve leaflet damage. And we all know that valve leaflet damage makes people slightly more likely to developing endocarditis. So that's another important component to see, particularly if you see a significant change in the aortic valve function, you have to keep in mind the fact that VSD patients may have a slightly increased risk of endocarditis. Great. Thank you, Dr. Schaefer. I think you give such a nice overview here of the different types of VSDs just to review membranous, muscular, and outlet VSDs that we've talked about. And then this really important sequelae of AI, I think that we'll get into a little bit later. Anu, any other types of VSDs we should be aware of, hopefully ones that don't come with a lot of other associated names? 
Yes, Agnes. The fourth category of VSDs are the inlet type. These are also known as the AV canal type, which occur in the inlet portion of the ventricular septum immediately inferior to the AV valve apparatus. And this can be seen in the AV canal defects and can be associated with a common AV valve and can be associated with AV septal malalignment and straddling. This is due to an endocardial cushion defect. And it's important to note that AV canal defects or AV septal defects are the most common form of congenital heart disease in patients with Down syndrome. Rarely, patients can also have a separate type of VSD that's an LV to RA shunt that's known as a Gerbode defect in which there's actually absence of the atrioventricular septal tissue that results in an isolated left ventricle to right atrial shunt. And this can occur when the VSD is located more superior to the tricuspid valve apparatus. And it can also be due to a deficient tricuspid valve septal leaflet and occasionally can be an acquired defect postoperatively as a complication. The effective impact of such a shunt is that it produces a right ventricular volume overload and elevated right atrial pressures, and these patients are at increased risk for endocarditis as well. The nature of VSDs will allow us to understand the course of the conduction system is another important piece to remember with ventricular septal defects. In the perimembranous defects, the bundle of His runs along the posterior and inferior rim of VSDs, as opposed to the inlet type in which the bundle of His runs anterior and superior to the defect. Surgically induced AV block is less likely when you have a muscular or an outlet type of defect because those are far from the AV node and the bundle of His. Really important points. I completely agree with your statements there. A couple of things I'd like to add. I think first is thinking about the inlet defect as being associated with a primum ASD. It's, as you say, it's on the AV canal spectrum. But I just want to remind everybody that if you have a primum atrial septal defect, you should immediately look for an inlet VSD because they're often associated with one another. And in all honesty, can be missed. It's very hard sometimes to see a very small inlet VSD in the setting of an adult echo. So it's really important to make sure on those apical forward chamber views in particular, that small color boxes with high frame rate are placed over the ventricular septum. I think your description of the Gerbode defects really interesting, particularly as it is uncommon, but really important to understand. In my experience, in all honesty, the most common type of Gerbode defects that I have seen actually is as a result of profound endocarditis sort of as an acquired ventricular septal defect, but really important to think about regardless of what type of patient we're looking at. And I really also want to just highlight your comment on the conduction system. I think your description is a really important one with regards to the fact that the uh, conduction system location is not the same in patients with ventricular septal defects, particularly of inlet or of membranous defects. And this is important for a couple of reasons. I think number one, it's why we actually have to choose our surgeons very carefully. The ACCAHA guidelines actually specifically state that we need to have surgeons with ACHD training performing surgeries on patients like this. And this is one of the main reasons. The other reason I'd like to highlight it is because it's actually inlet VSDs and really primum ASDs are often associated with the left anterior fascicular block. Not really expected in the setting of an ASD or a VSD, but it's because of this conduction system disease. And as a result, it often shows up on exams because it is such an interesting correlation with anatomic findings and physiologic manifestations. 
Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Schaefer. And just to highlight again, I think it's great to kind of go through, you know, where the conduction system lives in relationship to various VSDs in helping us to, I think, not only just memorize EKG findings, but really think about structurally why they may be impacted and why we're seeing really on ECG these findings with different types of VSDs. So thank you both for your review on that. Getting back to the patient and sort of back to our discussion about membranous VSDs, which are restrictive, Sam was previously reported to have a restrictive membranous VST with left to right shunt. And so, Dr. Schieffer, what determines the direction and degree of shunting in these patients? Thank you so much for asking, Agnes. I think you know this is one of my favorite questions to answer, and it's because it actually highlights physiology that we all loved when we were in medical school, but sometimes forget in the practice of general cardiology. So the shunt is determined based on the downstream compliance and resistance. So in the setting of a ventricular septal defect, the majority of shunting is actually, as Anu actually mentioned earlier in the session, dependent on the pulmonary vascular resistance and the systemic vascular resistance. This is because blood is a simple fluid and is going to follow the path of least resistance. So just like a mountain stream, it's going to go to the place where the blood flow is the easiest. The reason why I love to answer this question and why my mentor, Dr. Landsberg, always reminds me of the importance of this question is because it's not necessarily intuitive. I, as I'm sure many of you, were taught that the reason why shunts occur is because of pressure. And that's not wrong. It's just not as precise as we can be. And it's also hard to predict. We know that pulmonary vascular resistance, if it's normal, is much, much, much lower than systemic vascular resistance. Therefore, we can infer that the majority of patients should have a left to right shunt. However, if we find somebody that's desaturated because of a VSD, we actually know a lot about their pulmonary vascular resistance. So I think that's probably one of the most important things to take away because we can change PVR and SVR medically, which also can change the magnitude and direction of shunt. So I just can't say enough about the importance of understanding that physiology and the clinical management of these patients. Ah, it's fascinating just to see how the physiology drives function and drives what we're seeing with the patient. I'm just thinking back to my med school physiology classes even before that, just physics classes, thinking about how fluids move in a system. And this is, this is so great. And, you know, bringing it back to the patient again now, based on this conversation about the shunting, what were the key features we should be looking for when we're taking care of this patient, particularly in regards to physical exam? Yeah, Tommy, I think the physical exam cannot be stated enough in terms of the importance in understanding what are the features that we can see in ventricular septal defects. So VSDs typically cause a holosystolic murmur if the pressure in the right ventricle is lower than the left ventricle throughout systole, resulting in a holosystolic left-to-right shunt. Small restrictive VSDs will have a louder, harsher murmur, and they are typically holosystolic, usually can be associated with the thrill in the third or fourth intercostal space along the left sternal border. And as Dr. Schaefer mentioned earlier, that a louder murmur is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it is indicative of a more restrictive defect. Muscular VSDs can have shorter systolic murmurs. 
If there is no holosystolic murmur or the absence of a VSD murmur with a loud P2 and RV heave, that's a marker of an elevated right ventricular pressures or elevated PVR and equalization of ventricular pressures. And these patients, you have to look out for Eisenmenger syndrome. And they can also have other findings, including cyanosis and clubbing. And over time, you may hear a holosystolic murmur, but in that case, it is due to tricuspid regurgitation. If there is a presence of a systolic ejection murmur at the left upper sternal border, you do have to also think of other sequelae associated with the VSD, such as right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. If there's a diastolic murmur in the right upper sternal border with a wide pulse pressure and prominent carotid pulsations, think about aortic regurgitation. So in addition to thinking about the murmur that you would hear with VSD, it's also important to understand and think about other associated findings that can be seen there. Great. Thank you, Anu. And I wanted to highlight again what both you and Dr. Schaefer had mentioned that sort of contrary to our thinking about several other valvular lesions where the murmurs will be louder with worse pathology, you know, a loud murmur often with VSDs can actually point to a more restrictive type of defect. And I think that's a really great clinical pearl to sort of take away. I will also point out that being a general cardiology fellow, I think some of my ACHD attendings are some of the most masterful at the physical exam. And so I love that we're sort of taking time to sort of pause on this. Speaking of masterful ACHD attendings, Dr. Schaefer, any other clinical pearls on the physical exam that we should be aware of for these patients? I think that Anu's description is spot on, and I am going to have to listen to that on repeat just to remember all of the great things that she said. I too, Agnes, have had a couple of attendings, many attendings actually were exceptionally at the physical exam, and I have come to realize that it's actually because, you know, echoes are difficult in these patients, and often the physical exam is how we make the diagnosis. And really the way that I've seen people make diagnoses based on physical exam that were missed on echo is a couple of different things. I think number one is location. A very small VSD, depending on the location, may not be heard everywhere. So the classic, very small, restrictive, membranous defect may not be heard throughout the precordium, depending on other things like, for example, COPD or obesity may not allow for you to hear the murmur everywhere. So to that point, I just would remind everybody to think about listening in several different locations to ensure that you've gotten an adequate physical exam. The second thing I want to remind everybody is what Anu said with regards to saturations. It's really important to make sure that you actually look for clubbing and getting a baseline sat. Clubbing can actually be quite subtle and you want to be sure to check for it. And if you do see that the person has clubbing but is normally saturated at rest, that might tell you something about what the physiology does with physical activity. I actually have had a couple of patients who had clubbing despite a normal saturation at rest, and it was because they were kind of in that transition zone between normal PVR and Eisenmenger physiology. And we would have only made the diagnosis if we saw the clubbing. And then the last thing, and just another example of what Agnes has also seen too, is a physical exam finding, predicting an echo, not the other way around, is actually in the RVOT obstruction that Anu mentioned, or the double chamber right ventricle. In my group, actually, two different colleagues have made the diagnosis of double chamber right ventricle because a DCRV murmur is slightly different than a pulmonary stenosis murmur, and that's because it's not valvoir. Oftentimes, in a double chamber right ventricle murmur, 
because of the outflow tract obstruction, because of the VSD, there's actually kind of a palpable thrill because of that additional obstruction. So feeling a thrill or feeling a prominent RVOT vibration is a suggestion of a double chamber right ventricle obstruction. So I think it's really just in thinking through, and that's why I think all of us on the podcast today are enjoying this conversation because it really does allow us to just scale back to the initial physiology we all learned and fell in love with before we became cardiologists. Wow. I feel like I've just been listening to a masterclass in physical diagnosis here. Uh, Anu, Agnes, Dr. Schaefer, this is amazing pearls on how to examine these patients and to get so much information from all parts of the exam, not just the cardiac auscultation, but looking at the extremities, looking for clubbing and having those result inform our approach to the patient before we even get to imaging and sometimes when imaging lets us down. But, you know, imaging is a big part of this. And we've been talking a lot about the echocardiogram and evaluating VSDs. And Anu, one thing I want to hear your take on is just what are some of the key features to look for in echo to distinguish between all the types of VSDs we've been talking about? And those who are a little bit further ahead of me and their training have told me, at least this is a big boards question when it comes to cardiology boards. So I'm mean, be interested to hear a little bit of how we can distinguish between these different types of lesions. Yeah, Tommy, that it does come up a lot in our boards. The first and foremost will be the location and size of the VSD. In the peristernal long axis views, you can distinguish between muscular membranous and outlet type of VSDs. Perimembranous and outlet type of VSDs can be seen in the aortic valve and can be difficult to differentiate on the long axis view. But in this view, you can also see that aortic valve cusp prolapse that we talked about, where you can see the right coronary cusp prolapsing into the ventricular septal defect. A perimembranous VSD is usually seen when you're sweeping from the parasternal long axis towards the tricuspid valve. One of my favorite views for VSDs is on the parasternal short axis. In that view, you can see the VSD typically clearly distinguishing between the perimembranous that's more adjacent to the tricuspid valve. And if you consider the aortic valve as a clock face, you can look at the defect that's found between the 10 to 12 o'clock position is more likely to be perimembranous, whereas an outlet type is more likely to be in the 12 to 2 o'clock position and more adjacent to the pulmonary valve or under the pulmonary valve. Dr. Nadas has proposed the size of VSD being based on a comparison to the aortic valve. So small VSDs, less than a third of the size of the aortic valve, medium being about 33 to 50% of the size of the valve, and large being more than 50%. In the peristernal view, you can also see the sinus of Valsalva aneurysm. You can also see AI, and it's also the personal short axis where you can see the RV outflow tract. That is a great place to look for RV muscle bundles or double chamber right ventricle. The apical views enable assessment of inlet type of VSDs, and also you can see muscular VSDs. Another type of VSD that we talked about earlier, the Gerbodi defect, can also be seen on the apical view where you can see the left ventricle to right atrial shunt. Inlet VSDs are adjacent to the AV valves, the mitral and tricuspid valves. And the key here is to also look for extension into cortal attachments of the tricuspid valve or the mitral valve. When it comes to muscular VSDs, they can be located in the trabecular septum away from the cardiac valves. Garbodi defects are best visualized within the cardiac crux on the apical four-chamber view, in which you can see the shunt from the left ventricle to right atrium. Thanks for going through that, Anu. That's such an 
in-depth discussion of how ECHO can help us differentiate between these types of lesions. And what I'm taking away is that the size and the hemodynamic consequences of the shunt are, you know, things we can pick up on ECHO and also are huge in terms of determining management. And let me know, can you get a sense of the magnitude of the shunt on ECHO? Absolutely, Tommy. So normally, when there's no shunt, the pulmonary and systemic blood flow should be equal. And the way we look at this is QP is the flow in the pulmonary bed and QS is the flow in the systemic bed. And QP to QS ratio should be one to one. When there's a ventricular septal defect, that results in increased pulmonary blood flow. A hemodynamically significant shunt is one in which there is a QP to QS ratio that is greater than 1.5 to 1. By echocardiogram, it's technically difficult to directly assess the QP and QS, but the presence of left atrium and left ventricular dilation on echo represents that hemodynamically significant shunt and is usually associated with a shunt volume that is greater than 1.5 to 1. In the presence of normal left atrial and left ventricular size, that is usually suggestive of a smaller or restrictive uncomplicated VSD with a less shunt or smaller left-to-right shunt. QP to QS can be calculated most accurately by cardiac catheterization or non-invasively by cardiac MRI. Great. Thanks, Anu. And I think as you guys have really nicely alluded to, we've spent a long time sort of talking about anatomically, you know, where each ventricular septal defect is located, not only in sort of relation to other valves, septum, but as well as the conduction stuff. As you had mentioned, you know, most commonly these ventricular septal defects flow left to right. And so I think it strikes some people that you mentioned left-sided dilatation as a sequelae given the direction of this shunt, which I think you had already sort of explained prior. But can you sort of break down specifically why we look for left-sided dilatation as opposed to, say, right-sided dilatation at left to right shunt? Yes, Agnes, that's a great question. And really what this alludes to is the timing of the left to right shunt in a ventricular septal defect is in ventricular systole. So the blood goes left to right, but it gets pumped directly out into the pulmonary artery, resulting in increased pulmonary venous return to the left atrium. And then that goes to the left ventricle. And in reality, the RV doesn't actually see the blood flow because it gets pumped right out to the pulmonary artery. There are a few cases in which there can be right atrial dilation, and that includes the Gerbodi defect in which you're actually having the shunt going from the left ventricle to the right atrium. And in cases with double chamber RV and Eisenmenger, also you can see right-sided dilation, but because of the timing of the shunt that is left to right in ventricular septal defects, that results in typically left-sided dilation, LA and LV dilation. Great. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Anyway, I think just visualizing the blood flow as it gets pumped directly out to the PA was something when I learned was very helpful to understanding how this was sort of a left-sided loading type of lesion. Dr. Schaefer, do you have anything else to add to sort of expand on this? I mean, it's a really great description. I will just add a couple of things to highlight the important points that are made. I think the first is really like the RA dilution that Anu described. I think everyone I want you to pause for a second and think about the fact that it's actually the physiology that we're talking about, you know, with a second step. So Kerbody defect, it's because the shunt is directly from the LV to the RA. Isominger syndrome and double chamber right ventricle is because the right ventricle has an additional pressure load on it beyond 
the volume that's going across that defect in systole. So it's really a second physiology. It's sort of, you know, why would you have right atrial dilation in the setting of pulmonary hypertension? It's the same idea when it comes to Eisenmenger and double chamber right ventricle. The one thing I would just like to remind everybody about is the fact that QPQS, as you all have really nicely outlined, the proportion of blood flow through the lungs versus through the body is a really important distinguishing factor for the magnitude of the shunt. The only problem is that it happens at a single moment in time. And so you can imagine that if you were to measure the QPQS of somebody with, say, you know, a vagal episode, that would be very different than if they were just sitting there with their normal blood pressure. And so the important thing to remember is that QPQS is dependent on vascular resistance and compliance. And the vascular resistances can change over time and with loading condition. So that's why we really always have to include the chamber dilation as much as, if not more than, the QPQS designation when we think about severity of shunt. So to say it more cleanly, if a patient has a ventricular septal defect and a QPQS of 1.5 on cardiac MRI, but normal chamber sizes... I think twice about whether or not that QPQS is reflective of their physiology all of the time or simply their physiology at the time they got the cardiac MRI. That's so interesting. And just the context being so important when you're getting these images and getting these studies in terms of how you then interpret that information and then apply it back to the patient. And, you know, we've talked a lot about all the different types of imaging modalities and information we can get for taking care of our patients here. We've got a lot of exam data, a lot of echo data. And I guess my next question here would be, you know, what else can we do in terms of figuring out if this is a patient that warrants intervention? And Anu, is there any additional advanced imaging that might be helpful for determining whether we should go down that route for this patient? Yes, Tommy, we're finding that the use of advanced imaging can be helpful in many scenarios. In this case, if there's concern for left ventricular dilation by echo, cardiac MRI can give us a more accurate measurement of the ventricular volume and function, and such data can be helpful in determining timing of the intervention or repair of the VSD. By cardiac MRI phase contrast in A techniques, we can actually quantify the QP to QS that correlates strongly with the results obtained by invasive cardiac catheterization. And cardiac MRI can be further helpful in assessing coexisting lesions in the pulmonary artery, pulmonary veins, or the aorta. However, these techniques have not been widely adopted, but I think there is an increasing use of advanced imaging. Predominantly, echo is more widely available at this point in time, but I think there is an increasing added value that MRI and advanced imaging can offer in these patients. Great. Thank you so much, Anu. And I would direct us all to the Cardio Nerds episodes on multimodal imaging, particularly in ACHD. We'll have a, an entire episode just devoted to that, which is very exciting. Getting back to the case. So Sam's echo did note, you know, her no restrictive membranous PSD with a net left to right shunt. She was also noted to have normal RVSP and normal chamber sizes. She did note to you as well in this clinic visit that she and her husband are interested in starting the family, and she wanted to know if there's any additional precautions that need to be taken, you know, in particular, would she need to have surgery to close the VSD prior to getting pregnant? Anu, what are your takes on this? 
So in this case, Agnes, she has a small restrictive ventricular septal defect without signs of pulmonary hypertension. So she would not have an indication for surgery prior to getting pregnant. She would be low risk, modified WHO category one, CARPREG2 score zero, and would be considered safe to go through pregnancy. We would follow her closely during her pregnancy and expect to see her at least one to two times during her pregnancy. And that can vary a little bit between centers. And we would also consider bubble filters on all her IVs to reduce the risk of paradoxical air emboli. And we would recommend that she have a fetal echo at 22 to 24 weeks due to the maternal history of congenital heart disease, as there is a slightly increased risk for congenital heart disease in infants of mothers with congenital heart disease. And in the general population, congenital heart disease occurs in one in a hundred, so about a one percent risk. When there's maternal history of congenital heart disease, that risk can be increased. And with ventricular septal defects, that could be as high as about three to five percent risk. Depending on the type of congenital heart disease, that risk can vary. That's really interesting, Anu. And, you know, as someone who doesn't have a lot of experience yet in some of these different lesions and taking care of these women over the course of pregnancy, it's so fascinating to learn more about this. And, you know, Dr. Schaefer, I would ask any other considerations or recommendations for preconception counseling for these patients? No, I, I agree. And I think that the use of the published guidelines for pregnancy management, as Anu mentioned, is a great idea. You know, one thing actually as we're talking about it, that's occurring to me is, you know, one important part actually is to remind the mother, the father, and the peripartum team that we can all do this together. On occasion, providers who don't have a lot of experience with caring for adults with congenital heart disease in the peripartum period can create an environment that isn't necessarily calming for the patient. And so one thing I actually do is just do a lot of education, talking to everybody, making sure that they all know how to you know, get a hold of the, the right person. This is something I've seen modeled at our program with Dr. Valenti in particular. She works really hard to make sure that everybody knows who to call. And I think that that's really important. The one other like tiny thing I just want to mention is that I think, you know, filters are a really great idea. The only issue is that filters sometimes don't allow the passage of all medications. And so it's important to make sure that everybody on the team knows that if there is a filter and there's an acute emergency, oftentimes it's important to remove that filter in the setting of, say, a code or the need for intubation because some of the code medications and also contrast can't go through IV filters. And it's also important to remember that IV filters don't supplant the need for very meticulous IV care, regardless of what type of defect you have. Left or right shunt VSD wouldn't necessarily warrant like absolute 100% IV filters. But I think that other defects such as Isominger syndrome, which I think we may talk a little bit more about, certainly do have a very real risk of paradoxical embolism. Great. Thanks, Dr. Schaefer. I love that you sort of acknowledged, at least ideally, you know, particularly with patients with right to left shunt, you would love to have with filters. But practically, I love that you highlighted medication choices and particularly thinking ahead to potential emergencies and practically how that may be difficult with filters. Getting back to our patient, thankfully, she had no indication for surgical or percutaneous closure. But in general, considering these patients, what factors do you sort of think about for patients that do have indication for repair or surgical versus percutaneous in these patients? 
Excellent question, Agnes. I think that, you know, it is common that we do need to repair ventricular septal defects even when they're diagnosed in adulthood. And by and large, the repair is surgical. This is because there really aren't percutaneous devices that are safe for the majority of defects. The only defect that is amenable to percutaneous closure are the muscular ventricular septal defects, those that are really not associated with the atrioventricular valves, the tricuspid mitral valves, or associated with the aortic or pulmonic valves. And that's because you don't want to have a percutaneous closure device entrap the valves. But also, and probably even more importantly, is our conversation earlier with regards to the course of the conduction system. The percutaneous closure devices that have been trialed for membranous VSDs actually have not made it to prime time because of the risk of complete heart block. So unfortunately, technology today doesn't afford us the opportunity for percutaneous closure for the vast majority of patients. And if our patient, uh, Ms. Smith, had had an indication for closure, we would have had to elect for surgical repair. Interesting. It sounds like it's an area that's, you know, we've learned a lot and come a long way and there's still lesions that we're still working on getting more options for treating, but definitely sounds like there are people who should go for surgery and people who may be candidates for percutaneous interventions as well. And it seems like the type of VSD is a huge aspect of that with muscular DSDs being the ones who could potentially go down a percutaneous route. Thankfully, our patient here is doing well. You know, we're talking a lot about how we're going to follow her in terms of over the course of her pregnancy. And Dr. Schaefer, I'd be interested to get your opinion. How often would you plan to see her and follow up? And what kind of testing would you be getting for her along the way through the course of her pregnancy? Yeah, thanks. Great question. I agree with some of the comments that Otto made earlier. I think that seeing her once or twice during the pregnancy would be reasonable. And I think that we definitely would want to have an up-to-date echo before pregnancy. And then depending on the findings, we may want to consider a repeat echo postpartum. I do want to just say that cardio OB and adult congenital heart disease is a complex topic. And I know that the Cardio Nerds podcasts are coming with this very important topic. I will just sort of say that there's a lot more to think about. I think in the immediate delivery period, back to this patient, I probably wouldn't do a whole lot of special monitoring. We wouldn't necessarily expect her to have a particularly high arrhythmia risk. So I think that telemetry wouldn't be required unless she had additional indication. And I think that, you know, just the regular sort of peripartum care that we provide to the patient with regards to oxygen saturations and frequent blood pressure testing and that sort of thing, particularly in the six hours postpartum would be helpful. But that's kind of it. I think, you know, for patients like this, it's kind of a relief to them that we actually can focus on, you know, helping this woman become a mother and not necessarily having, you know, a particularly high risk situation. But it is a complex thing. And I will say that when it comes to peripartum care, you always want to have the support and collaboration of a maternal fetal medicine group. And I would say that the last plug I would make is just that there are a lot of really cool studies coming out with regards to new data in this space. And I think that we're learning actually that the body is actually really good at dealing with pregnancies and oftentimes sort of taking our cues from the mother rather than empirically coming up with management plans is often the best strategy. No, that's amazing. And I think just as you said, the importance of a multidisciplinary team is so, so key here. You know, for those out there who are interested in learning more, thank you so much for mentioning the Cardio OB series we have with Cardio Nurse Dr. Schaefer. And we have an episode that actually focuses on adult congenital heart disease and taking care of those patients in the peripartum period. So I know I'm looking forward to learning a ton from that episode and be a nice compliment with our discussion here. 
Okay, great. So progressing the case, our patient Sam went on to have an uneventful pregnancy. She is seen two years later for follow-up and she reports she's doing very well, living an active, healthy lifestyle and has no symptoms from a congenital heart disease perspective. Her son is fortunately also healthy and doing well. Moving on to our next ACHT case, you see a new patient in the clinic, also with known membranous restrictive BSD with left to right shift. On exam, however, you do note a normal S1, but also a loud 4 out of 6 crescendo decrescendo systolic murmur at the left upper sternal border that's associated with thrill at the left upper sternal border as well. You also note normal A2 and a soft P2 and no diastolic murmur. You get an EKG as part of your normal clinic visit, which shows right axis deviation, right bundle branch block, and right ventricular hypertrophy. So Anu, just knowing this about the patient's history and exam, what types of things are you thinking? So Agnes, what you're describing on exam, I would be concerned about a double chamber RV. A double chamber RV can develop over time in patients with ventricular septal defects, and it's most commonly associated with perimembranous defect that is caused by hypertrophy of aberrant muscle bundles that develop in the RV in the region of the membranous VSD jet flow. As the name implies, the RV is divided into two chambers, a proximal height pressure chamber that's closer to the tricuspid valve and a more distal low pressure chamber that's more closer to the pulmonary valve separated by obstructive muscle bundles. And this condition occurs in about 3 to 10% of patients with perimembranous VSDs, and it protects actually against the development of pulmonary hypertension. But there are reports of double chamber right ventricle developing even after surgical repair, which is important to note that even after the repair of VSD and in the absence of a residual defect or any kind of residual shunt, patients are still at risk for developing a double chamber right ventricle. In addition to this, there are other causes for acquired right ventricular outflow tract obstruction that could be due to hypertrophy and progressive obstruction of a malaligned infundibular outlet septum that usually presents with a pre-existing pressure gradient between the right ventricle and pulmonary artery that can then progress over time. But this is an important feature to consider when you're examining patients is the type of physical exam that you see with a double chamber RV, as this can be seen even after repair of a VSD. Great. Thank you so much, Anu, for your thoughts. Again, incredible what we can pick up from the physical exam. Dr. Schaefer, in considering this and then assuming we progress the case and we get an echo which confirms our restrictive VSD as well as double chamber RV, how would you manage uh, a patient with a restrictive VSD in the setting of this double chamber RV? That's an interesting question. I think that double chamber right ventricles are a little bit nuanced with regards to their management in adulthood. I will say first and foremost, the guidelines do provide us a little bit of recommendations with regards to how to manage these patients. It's recommended with a class one indication that we should do surgical repair for patients who are found to have a double chamber right ventricle with moderate or greater outflow tract obstruction. Now, I will say this becomes a little complicated because they don't tell us what moderate is in the guidelines. In general, that is sort of we use the same categorization as we do for pulmonic stenosis. So that would be a gradient sort of in the somewhere above 40 or so across the double chamber right ventricle. And just to remind everybody, once again, we're not necessarily talking about two whole other ventricles. We're talking about just like a sort of flow restriction because of muscle bundles 
about a centimeter or below the pulmonary valve. But nonetheless, if we have a moderate or greater restrictive double chamber right ventricle or this muscle bundle, and they're symptomatic in a way that we feel is secondary to the double chamber right ventricle, then it's certainly reasonable to repair patients. On occasion, these patients can present with other things like heart failure, exercise intolerance, or arrhythmia. And so those could potentially also be considered indication. I think the more complicated scenario, which quite frankly is what has made it to my clinic more frequently, are the patients who are found incidentally to have a double chamber right ventricle because of the physical exam, but they don't necessarily have symptoms and their right ventricle function is good. Those patients, it's a little bit of a gray area. There's a class 2B indication from the ACCHA guidelines, which really means it's reasonable to consider. But I think those patients are a little bit more complex. And I can tell you my personal management really goes back to the physiology. Do the patients have any change in their right ventricular function? Do they have any change in their exercise capacity, even if they perceive themselves to be fit? So my follow-up of management of patients, if our patient was in fact asymptomatic, would be to do serial imaging and serial exercise tests to help understand his physiology better. And if there was any change, then I do consider repair of the VSD and resection of the muscle bundles causing obstruction. Right. Fascinating, Dr. Schaefer. and just shows the importance of serial evaluation, serial imaging for these folks and getting a better sense for their trajectory and where they fall in terms of their physiology in terms of how we're going to approach taking care of them going forward. So, you know, let's say that we do actually end up closing this VSD. Anu, what are the long-term outcomes we should monitor for in this patient? Great question, Tommy. So patients with double chamber right ventricle, they are at risk for recurrence of the acquired right ventricular muscle bundles. And even after VSD closure, it's important to assess for residual VSD development of pulmonary hypertension. Post-VSD patch closure can also result with a right bundle branch block that is commonly seen on EKGs as a result of where that patch is. They can also be at risk for late post-operative complete heart block if there's damage to the AV node as Dr. Schaefer highlighted earlier, it's very important to be mindful of where the conduction system is in relation to the VSD. And post-VSD closure patients can also be at risk for subaortic membrane development or left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Great. Thank you so much both to Anu and Dr. Schaefer. I think we covered so much just in those two cases. Dr. Schaefer, if you could take us home on these two cases, if you could just summarize three important takeaway points for all of us to remember, what would they be? Sure. I think the most important thing to remember about a ventricular septal defect is that it's a left-sided chamber enlargement. That's the primary trigger for VSD closure with a secondary consideration of QPQS. I think the second thing that's really important to remember is that shunting is based on downstream vascular resistance in the setting of VSDs since the shunting is during systole. So if you see a reversal of a VSD shunt, it's probably because the PVR is elevated. And then the third point, which I feel like everyone has made a really great point of making, is that anatomic description evaluation is key. Look at the location of the VSD to help you understand whether or not the AV valves or the aortic and pulmonic valves are going to be involved. And especially important, don't be one of those people that misses a double chamber right ventricle. Anu and Agnes have been really great at describing the echocardiographic approach. And I think that is key. You know, you never find stuff like this unless you look for it, but it's actually fairly easy to see if you do look for it. So those would be my three takeaway points. Great. I love it, Dr. Schaefer. All right. Moving on to our next case. 
you are seeing in your ACHD clinic, a 36-year-old gentleman with history of Down syndrome, also with history of large ventricular septal defect that has gone unrepaired. He is here today with his mother, who reports he attends an adult day program. And over the past one year, she has noticed that he's more tired than usual and just in general, unable to keep up with his normal activity. She's also noticed that he's very short of breath with walking near short distances. And so Anu, just given the history and background of this patient, what are some of your thoughts? So given the history in this case, Agnes, I would be concerned about Eisenmenger syndrome, in which patients with systemic to pulmonary shunts, such as a non-restrictive ventricular septal defect, develop pulmonary vascular disease that ultimately results in a right-to-left shunting and cyanosis. In large left-to-right shunt, what happens over time is due to the increase in pulmonary blood flow, they over time have pulmonary vascular remodeling and pulmonary arteriolar intimal and medial hypertrophy, which then results in a pulmonary vascular disease that causes increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. This increase in pulmonary vascular resistance is what results in increase in pulmonary artery pressure and pulmonary arterial hypertension, which then causes a reversal of the shunt and a net right-to-left shunting. So it is the risk of having this unrestrictive or non-restrictive ventricular septal defect and this long-term outcome of left-to-right shunt that then reverses over time due to an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance to a right-to-left shunt. The risk of developing Eisenmenger syndrome is determined by the size of the initial left-to-right shunt and the volume of the pulmonary blood flow because that is what impacts the remodeling in the pulmonary vasculature. When you have large shunts, they are at higher risk. In addition, the type of defect is also important. Only approximately 10% of patients that are unrepaired atrial septal defects go on to develop Eisenmenger, compared to about 50% of patients that are unrepaired ventricular septal defects. And again, that's more common when you've got a non-restrictive or large ventricular septal defect. The diagnosis should be confirmed by cardiac catheterization to assess for pulmonary artery pressures and pulmonary arterial hypertension, and a complete workup for other causes of pulmonary arterial hypertension should also be performed. Adults with Down syndrome, such as the patient you have described, are also at risk for thyroid disease and obstructive sleep apnea, so it's important to have appropriate screening and follow-up for those conditions as well. Anu, thank you so much for outlining all that data and particularly going through the physiology for how Eisenmenger syndrome develops. And Dr. Schaefer, can you help me out? What are some of the management considerations around patients with PH related to Eisenmenger syndrome? My understanding is that closure is usually contraindicated in these patients since the VSD is functioning kind of like a pop-off valve and closure would acutely increase the afterload on the RV. Is that correct? Totally. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a great way to think about it. In the setting of ventricular septal defect with Isominger syndrome, the PVR elevation causes already the afterload to be high on the RV. And so the way that the right heart manages the PVR elevation is by offloading some of that blood so that the ventricle doesn't have to pump as much of the cardiac output to the high resistance pulmonary vasculature and can instead send to what is probably a slightly more compliant or at least as compliant ventricle and SVR. 
so the afterload issue is certainly the biggest issue in the, and we all consider Isominger syndrome to be a contraindication to VSD closure. The consideration in a patient like this would be multifactorial. Perhaps the first thing that we do is think about whether or not any medications are available to lower the pulmonary vascular resistance. It is, I would say, extremely unlikely that medications would lower the PVR enough to facilitate closure in an adult with Isominger syndrome. But there are data to suggest that decreasing the pulmonary vascular resistance can improve intermediate surrogate outcomes such as six-minute walk distance and symptoms. And thus, we feel probably it does relate to improvement in things like hospitalizations and mortality. So the first thing I think about is whether or not I can actually manage their PVR medically. And I will say in general, I typically use things like oral agents such as endothelin receptor antagonists or prostacycline agonists. PD-5 inhibitors such as lildenafil are also critical components of the consideration of these patients. If I have maximized PVR or simultaneous with maximizing my PVR, the second thing that I do is check a hematocrit and typically iron stores. I check a hematocrit because I want to evaluate two things. One is whether or not the person has appropriately elevated hemoglobin. Dr. Broberg out of the Oregon Health Sciences Center has written a couple of really important articles helping us understand and perhaps predict the level of hemoglobin based on the person's cyanosis. So the patient should have an elevated hemoglobin and hematocrit. If the patient's hemoglobin hematocrit is elevated above 65 or 70, then I consider the patient to be at risk for hyperviscosity syndrome. I will say that's really uncommon and people typically don't present sort of off the street. They typically present with a number of different symptoms, including joint pain and confusion, headache, that sort of thing. But if you do find somebody with a hemoglobin and hematocrit that's extremely elevated, then you might want to consider hydration and or erythrophoresis, which is preferable to phlebotomy because it's the removal of only the red blood cells, which allows you to maintain the patient's platelets, white blood cells, and potentially not remove as much plasma as well. Okay, so if we found that the person's PVR is as low as we can make it medically and we find that the person's hemoglobin and hematocrit are sort of relatively in the right range, we actually then check an iron store. And the reason is because patients with low iron actually do worse if they have Isominger syndrome. So iron deficiency independent of hemoglobin and hematocrit is also a problem in our Isominger patients to the point where I would say the majority of Isominger patients that I follow do require iron supplementation probably about once every one to two years, depending on their level of cyanosis. There's even more to think about. I mean, I think the Isominger patient's complicated because we have to also think about the paradox embolism risk. There are quite a few other things to consider as we care for the ACHD patient with Eisenmenger. It's a, it's a hard scenario. Yeah, it seems like these patients, you know, the approach to them needs to be so multifactorial and so nuanced. And thank you, Dr. Schaefer, for going through just some of the considerations there. You know, one other thing I would think about is, and be curious about is whether or not they meet criteria for endocarditis prophylaxis, you know, given that the patient has unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease. You know, I hear a lot about endocarditis prophylaxis and things have changed a lot on this, I feel like. And I have patients in my primary care clinic who want to know whether or not they need antibiotics for certain procedures. And, you know, so to better understand these recommendations, Dr. Schaefer, can you help me figure out what would be this patient's risk for endocarditis? You know, I'm not sure if I would 
be able to tell you the exact, I've tried to look it up. I'm not sure there's a clear number. I would just say it's high. So I think that we definitely would consider this person's risk elevated for endocarditis. And as a result, we would consider prophylaxis for dental procedures. I wouldn't do more than what the ACCA and AHA guidelines suggest, which is just dental prophylaxis for any cleanings or major dental work. But I also would have a low threshold for considering the possibility of endocarditis if the patient develops any sort of fever or concerning symptoms. So I also have a lower threshold for evaluation of endocarditis, as you're suggesting. It's an important thing to consider. Great. Thank you so much to Dr. Schaefer and to Anu for laying out this case really nicely. Dr. Schaefer, if you could summarize three major takeaways that are important to remember in taking care of patients with unrepaired BSD and Eisenbanger syndrome, what would they be? I think the most important thing is to remember the unfortunate scenario that we've discussed, which is repair is really not going to be an option and palliation is really what we're going for here. We're trying to manage the abnormal physiology so the number one issue is we're trying to lower the PVR, if at all possible. I think the second thing we're trying to do is make sure that the hemoglobin and hematocrit are optimal and then also making sure that we've checked the iron stores. But if I could have a fourth thing, I would say this endocarditis is extremely important. You have to make sure that these patients are on prophylactic antibiotics before all dental work. Thank you so much, Dr. Schaefer, for just what a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much as well, Anu and Agnes, for all the teaching that we've talked about so far today. I know I've learned just a ton over the course of this last hour. And, you know, what I've been taking away is that, you know, adult congenital heart disease is such a broad field. It has so many overlaps with different specialties. And it's just so much to learn here that I'm so excited to go back and re-listen to all this. Anu, you've talked about your experience as an adult congenital heart disease fellow and I want to hear a little bit more about what the next steps are for you. You know, this is such a vibrant field that's growing all the time. So I'm curious to hear where your next interests are going to be. Thanks, Tommy. This has been a great discussion on the pathophysiology and understanding ventricular septal defects. My area of focus within adult congenital heart disease is in imaging, and my passion is in cardiac MRI and cardiac CT. And I'm headed next to Connecticut Children's and University of Connecticut for adult congenital heart disease and advanced cardiac imaging. And I'm very excited about that next chapter. It's amazing. I can't wait to hear about everything that you discover and everything that you do over at Connecticut and just all the patients you're going to take care of and the change you're going to make in their lives there. It's amazing. Now, Dr. Schaefer, I also have the privilege to ask you a fan favorite here in the Cardio Nerds. That's what makes your heart flutter about adult congenital heart disease? You know, I'm particularly looking forward to hearing your perspective on this because you're such a leader in medical education in this field and your fellow's course on ACHD has inspired so much interest in the field and it Makes all of us so excited here at Cardio Nerds and make all of our heart flutter. But I would be really interested to hear what makes your heart flutter about this field. Thank you so much for asking. And thank you so much for letting me be part of this. I'm so glad to hear that you all feel like our education is helpful because it's really just about taking great care of our patients. The reason why I do what I do, and this is a little bit of a secret, I would say, amongst adult congenital heart disease providers, I think what you may not know about why practicing ACHD is so awesome is because we get to do what every first-year medical student imagines their life is going to be like as a cardiologist. I truly feel. I work with first-year medical students, actually, so I'm speaking from experience. When I started medical school, I wanted to be a patient's doctor, and I wanted to be part of their lives, and I wanted to use physiology every day. And I do that. 
it feels like a gift and like an amazing fortune that I actually am part of patients' lives. I get to see them through their pregnancies. I get to see them through their kids' graduations. I get to see them through all parts of their lives because I'm their cardiologist for life. That's something that I was looking for my whole you know, residency and fellowship training. I wanted to be a patient's doctor and I wanted them to feel like I was part of helping them lead full and important lives. And we get to do that in adult congenital heart disease. It's pretty phenomenal. So that's what keeps me going. It's, I feel like we get to do sort of just really meaningful work. And I, you know, I can't answer that question without saying that it's because of all of my mentors that I learned that. You know, I didn't know that ACHD was going to let me do this until I worked with adult congenital heart disease doctors that modeled this. So anything anyone ever observes in me, it's really just me reflecting my mentors and, you know, the people that I looked to for advice. They're the ones that showed me that you can do this in adult congenital heart disease. So Yeah, I mean, I think it's great, obviously. And I really would be happy to talk to anybody who's interested in thinking about ACHD as a career. And I'm so glad to hear that Anna is headed up my way. We're going to have to do a lot more collaboration because she has done such a wonderful job of teaching us about VSDs today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Thank you so much to Anu and Dr. Schieffer for not only sharing their wisdom in ACHD, but a little bit part of their careers, why they personally love what they do. You know, that's a really inspiring part of this series for us. So thank you so much for listening and everyone will see you next time.